So welcome to the midway point in the book of Hebrews. Um, this is one of the more difficult books in the New Testament to go through. The author dives into a much deeper subject than most other authors. He wants us to understand the core foundations of our faith. So right off the bat, what I'm going to tell you is... Um, this one goes in deeper today, okay? Uh, last time he talked a little bit about he wants to dive into deeper subjects. I'll even talk about that again later. He dives into a deeper subject. He talks about the priesthood of Melchizedek in this chapter. It's something that most of us have maybe heard the word, but we don't really know. So we're actually gonna be jumping into that. Trust me, if you stay awake all the way to the end, it's got a really great application at the end. But like I said before, this isn't going to be one of those hooting and hollering, yeah, I feel great about this. It's going to be one of those intellectual ones where like, that really makes sense. I'm so thankful for it. And I hope you enjoy this sermon. Like I said, this one's going to be slightly deeper. Sorry, Floyd. I didn't want to bore you on your birthday. Okay, like I said, we're going to be leaving behind ordinary and basic doctrines because he said he wants to dive into deeper subjects. He wants to dive deeper into our faith and shine a light on what he feels like are overlooked, very important spiritual things. Now, if you were with us last week, uh, whether you were on location or you were watching us online, which, you know, that's great that we have that ability so you guys can feel connected even when you can't be here, which is amazing. Um... I want to remind you of last week's sermon before we move forward because it will help a little bit. And I always like to kind of reminisce a little bit. And if you weren't here, the good news is you get a three-minute sermon instead of a 25-minute sermon. So if you want the really short version. Uh, so last week, we wrapped up Hebrews chapter 6. And we looked at the final handful of verses, all of which pointed us to this paradox of God's unchanging nature, his ability to change our lives. We started off by looking at the promises and that God has an immutable nature. Immutable means that he doesn't change ever. He never changes. So immutable is the New King James word that is used twice, once in verse 17 and once in 18. And we're told about the steadfast and unchanging nature of God. Now, this can be a really great thing, or it can be a really bad thing depending on your life and your life choices. You see, since God is unchanging, if he makes an oath, it tells us that he's going to do something, and guess what? He'll always follow through. So he will do it. We don't always know when or how, but God always follows through on his promises. If he makes a promise, he will follow through on it. The bad news is, though, for the nation of Israel... They agreed to several contracts, or what the Bible calls covenants, with God. And these covenants said that if the nation followed God with all of their heart and didn't worship idols, that God would bless them. He would give them land. He would give them uh, kids. He would give them prosperity and wealth and, and a bunch of other things. God says he would bless them. However, on the other hand, God says, if you follow after idols and you stop following after me, I'm going to raise up other nations and they're going to destroy you and you're going to regret it. And they even agreed to it. They said, yeah, sure. So God gave them that part of the commandment and that actual, that part of the covenant. So when they start worshiping false gods and they break their end, um, and often if you read the Old Testament, you hear somebody that's, that's not very familiar with the Bible, that doesn't know it really well, or maybe they say they know it well. They read the Old Testament, they're like, the God of the Old Testament is full of brimstone and hellfire and he is vengeful and he does not like people. You, you ever heard someone say something along those lines? God of the Old Testament, he's a wrath God. The God of the New Testament, he's a love God. They kind of separate, like there's this difference. He's not. 
ultimately, God is just upholding his end of the contract. He's literally just following through with what he agreed that he said he would do. However, it's not all bad news. God also said that he would send a savior as well during that time that would bless all of the nations through the seed of Abraham. And you know what? God keeps his promises. He sent Jesus who came and died on the cross taking our punishment. He paved a way for us to have a fixed and whole relationship with our creator for the first time since creation, all the way of Adam, all the way back in the garden. God is unchanging. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change the way he acts. He doesn't go back on his promises. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in his unchanging nature, he teaches us how to change to become more like him. Abraham sought after God. And in our verse that we were looking at last time, it said Abraham had patiently endured for years before he finally obtained the promise. The promise speaks of an heir that God had given him. And it was given to Abraham when it was, he was already over 100 years old. And our memory verse speaks of this same promise and this same patient endurance that Abraham had that we too must adopt in our lives if we're going to pursue God earnestly. And it says, and you can say it with me here, we'll say this one together, but without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's Hebrews eleven six. The ultimate message of our memory verse that we've been looking at these past several weeks is that we diligently seek him. Not to give some lighthearted pursuit, but to follow after God with absolutely everything. I've met people, and maybe you have as well, that say they have tried God and it didn't work out. Maybe they tried church and it didn't go well for them. They tried him like he was a new flavor of potato chips. You ever tried ketchup potato uh, chips? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but but they, they say they tried God like they tried a new flavor of potato chips, and when they didn't like the flavor, guess what? They moved on. They decided something else was better. And I recently saw a quote that I really liked that said this. Some of y'all didn't try God. Y'all tried church. And when the church hurt you, or you found out that liars and fake people also go to church, you concluded, you concluded that God wasn't real or that Christianity was a joke. And if people can make you walk away from God, you were never in a relationship with him. You were just in a religion. That's an excerpt from a longer poem by uh, Randy McClave uh, called In a Religion. It's actually a really great poem. Diligence in our pursuit of God is what shows the difference between what we mistake is real and what is actually real. Diligence in our pursuit reveals our hearts and our intentions. And God says, seek me and I will be found by you. And that's a promise from the God who does not change. So up until this point, we've been looking at the priestly ministry of Jesus while he was on the earth. In chapter 7, we're going to see a switch of Jesus' priestly ministry and what he's doing now in heaven. This is where the capacity of what he's doing slightly changes. He's now sitting at the right hand of God, which in the coming chapters, the author is actually going to be referencing. Today, as we cover chapter 7, our sermon title is Priests and Sacrifices. Priests and Sacrifices. 
We're going to be covering, like I said before, a topic that is probably a bit unfamiliar to most. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit. I'll have all the verses on the screen because we're actually going to be in Genesis as well because it references Genesis, so we want to bring you actually to that story and what's happening there so everyone stays on the same page. But we're going to start out in Hebrews chapter 7. If you have your Bibles open, we're going to be in the first couple of verses. I'll have them on the screen just in case. He says in chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So the first word in this sentence is the word for. And with this one word, our author links chapter 7, verse 1, with chapter 6, verse 20. For us, it's an entire different chapter. For him, it's just the next sentence. Remember, we added uh, the chapters and verses long after these were written to help us to find them easier in our Bibles. Now, In 620, our author told us that Jesus has stepped into being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For us, reading, especially here in America, this kind of comes out of left field. We're like, where did this topic even come from? What does this even mean? We see Jesus as a priest, and we think, if you're like me, that that would probably be enough. I mean, is there much more to it? Could there be more? But as usual, God has other plans. Remember, God is immutable. He does not change, and he always keeps his promises. So do you want to know what my favorite thing about the Bible is? That everything blends together perfectly. Not only does the Bible never contradict itself, not even once, ever, it constantly references itself, and it constantly ties in the different points from the beginning to the end, and everything interweaves in this beautiful tapestry the way God has woven it. And it constantly reaffirms everything. In fact, the further I dig into the Bible, the more amazed I am how everything fits together so well. And this is one of those moments that we're about to walk into. But to get a full perspective of what exactly is happening, we need to walk back in time to see what happened to fully understand how it affects us today and what the author is getting at. So in verse 1, it said, Melchizedek met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings. This story happens in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. Now, you're probably semi-familiar with some of the surrounding events. If you've ever been to church before, you've probably heard of Lot, Abraham's nephew, or maybe you've heard of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Well, a couple of chapters before that story of Sodom and Gomorrah, a couple of chapters before that, we find that Lot, Abraham's nephew, is already living in Sodom. And during the time, uh, there's a bunch of kings reigning. And at this time, uh, a bunch of the kings of the... uh, East form kind of a confederacy against the kings in the West. They decide to wage war against these other kings to take them over. So when the battle's over, the East kings win. They, they decided to have a battle with the West kings. So they take all of the people and all of the money from the kings in the West. And as part of this, they're defeated. And Lot is among those who are captured because he's in one of the kings of the East's uh, um, towns and he's pulled away. So the news of his nephew being captured reaches Abraham, and this is his reaction. I'll put this on the screen for you in 1414. Now, when Abraham heard his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born of his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Okay, I'm just going to go off on a rabbit trail real fast here. You might not have noticed this. Who has 318 trained servants for war in their house? Anybody? Any of you guys hiding a spare? 
A military battalion, the minimum number to reach the word battalion is 300. He has a military battalion in his house. Just, just saying. If every single one of those men that he has trained has a wife and just one kid, he has over 1,000 people in his house. Apparently, Abe's a force to be reckoned with. Just, just saying, just so you can know. Okay. Oh, yes. So he hears that his brother's son, uh, referred here as brother, but it's his brother's son. He considers him family because he's his brother's son. He's been taken captive, so he musters the troop and he heads towards Dan. So let's keep reading. 15 through 16, it says, He divided, Abraham divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all of the goods, and he brought back his brother Lot and all his goods, as well as all the women, all the people. So he does a night surprise attack on these guys. who They thought that they won the victory. They thought no one was coming after them. All of a sudden, Abraham comes out with 318 trained men in his house, He brings back everything after he completely overcomes them and subdues them, including his nephew Lot. Now, directly after this, the king of Sodom thanks Abraham and says, hey, would you um, just give me my people back? You can keep all the spoils of war. I just want my people. Before Abraham can even respond, Melchizedek comes onto the scene. It's like seemingly out of nowhere, As Abraham is about to give the king of Sodom his reply, Melchizedek shows up. It says, in verses 18 to 20, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and he said, blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand and gave him a tithe of all. So we are given no warning. He just jumps out on the scene. He just appears out of thin air. And there are a lot of very interesting things about this Melchizedek. The first thing is that his name means king of peace. Second, not only is he a king, but also he is a priest. He holds the distinction of a dual rule, king and priest. Not just any priest, but he's the priest of God. Not just a priest, but it says the priest of God. So time frame wise, if you're thinking priesthood, like, okay, the the Old Testament, they had priests, right? Time phrase wise, this is actually hundreds of years before Aaron is born and the Levitical priesthood is established. So when you're thinking Moses and the priesthood, this is before that. This is before we have officially established priests of God serving underneath that name. So it's interesting that Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils, showing that he recognizes Melchizedek has some kind of greater authority than himself. Now, there are a lot of theories about Melchizedek, and clearly he's a type of Jesus, being a king and a priest. So he he looks a little bit like Jesus in that way. There are some that say that he is a pre-incarnate Jesus, Uh, Basically, if you're unfamiliar with the word pre-incarnate, that means Jesus dwelling in a human body before he came to earth dwelling in a human body as Jesus. Does that somewhat make sense? So there are good debates on both sides. We'll talk a little bit about them. I'm not going to get super deep, but I want you to see the general idea. While there's only one direct reference to the title king of Salem, there is one other reference to this Melchizedek. He only shows up three times in scripture, right here in Genesis, in Hebrews, and then one other time in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 110, verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
This is the verse that we see the author of Hebrews referencing in chapter 6, verse 20. So here the Lord makes a promise, again, almost out of nowhere, if you're reading the context, it kind of pops out, that Jesus would become a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But there's a bit of a snag here. Using the word order typically means that there's some kind of succession, okay? So the Pope, the, the, the order of the Pope, actually there's a succession in the Catholic Church. When you talk about orders, there's people coming. In this particular order, there's only two people. There's Melchizedek and there's Jesus, which is really different. Since there's only two people, if Mel is Jesus, if Melchizedek is Jesus, that's easily solved, and really there's only one person. However, this may not be the case. And if that isn't enough to get your head spinning, there's actually one detail that we should probably go over before I start giving you actual answers. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2, we see that Abraham gives Mel a tenth of the spoils. Now, if you're wondering, yes, this is where we start actually getting the idea of a tithe. You hear of people saying, hey, you know, did you tithe in church? This is where we get that idea. That's another sermon for another day. We're not going to be talking about that, but this is the base verse for that particular amount. But that, like I said, is a sermon for another day. In verse 2, it also tells us that the king of Salem also means king of peace. And in verse 3 of chapter 7, we see these words. Okay, so this is explaining who Melchizedek is. It says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, remains a priest continually. So if you're reading along and you've got your Bible and you just read those couple of verses, you're probably asking, um, are you saying that Melchizedek doesn't have a mother or father and he's like God in that way? Well, there are a couple of different ways to interpret this verse, and people are split on how to interpret it. The author either means this literally or figuratively. If he means thus to take us literally, then Melchizedek is Jesus, being a man before he came to earth as Jesus. If he means it figuratively, it means that the silence of Scripture, okay, sometimes God doesn't give us all the answers. You ever, you ever read your Bible like, God, could you just outline this for me, and he doesn't, and you're like, um, what am I going to do? Sometimes God doesn't speak on something, and that's just as powerful as when he does speak on something. Sometimes he leaves stuff out on purpose. And so if it's a figurative sense, the way we're supposed to read this, then what he's saying is the silence of Scripture, it tells us nothing of this man's past, his genealogy, anything else. So in that way, it's kind of referencing he's like Jesus, that we don't know anything about that. It seems most likely that we're supposed to take this figuratively. If this man is a type of Jesus, we don't know his background. And you know what? That's okay if we don't because it doesn't matter. So he's using him as a type of Jesus. So I told you that the author says he wants to dive deeper back in chapter 6. I think this is where he wanted to go. After talking about the impossibility of losing our salvation, which that's chapter 6, you cannot lose your salvation. And he even goes through that. That's what we talked about two messages ago. The question remains... Why talk about this guy in the first place? Like, what effect does this guy have on our lives right now? Like, I'm 2024. 20, um, what? Why are we even talking about this? Like most churches, we typically spend most of our time talking about the birth, the life, the death of Jesus. We talk about his burial, his resurrection. We even sometimes spend time talking about his time on earth after his resurrection. But what about where he is today and what he's doing right now? How often do we talk about what Jesus is doing for us right at this moment? 
We might reference it, but we never really talk about what he's doing or even how it affects us every single day. So our author brings it up. To talk about how his current position affects us every day, first we need to talk about how Jesus improves the priesthood. So to, to understand what he's doing right now, what Jesus is doing to help you, he talks about the priesthood. He says these words in 7.11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest that should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? So last week, we talked about how before Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, people had to bring sacrifices to the temple every time they sinned if they want to have an open conversation of God. So travel time, okay? We go back in the Old Testament. You live in the Old Testament. You, are, you believe in God, okay? Everybody here probably believes in God, okay? If you, if you want to follow God, you have sin in your life, and to get rid of that sin, you have to take an animal from your possession. Uh, so if you're a farmer, you got to take one of your herd, okay? That means your livelihood, okay? That's not just an animal. It's also your livelihood. So it comes at a cost. You have to bring it to the temple and have it sacrificed there at the temple to be able to have your sins forgiven so that you can talk to God and have open communication with God until you sin again, which you then have to repeat the process. You have to continue to do that. Now, so think about it this way. If the temple was close to us, say it was in Cortland, okay? From here to Walmart's 12 miles, okay? Just to Walmart, straight line. If you sinned, and you recognize that you sinned, and you wanted to get a right relationship so you could actually have a conversation with God, you would take an animal from your herd, from right here, and if, if you didn't have a horse, that's a five-hour walk one way with that animal in tow. Try towing a goat or something for five hours and try to see how that goes. Could you imagine coming from a place, okay, Jesus' parents came from Nazareth. They were a full week walk to the temple where they could do sacrifices. Could you imagine how that would affect your relationship with God if you had to travel a week to go have a sacrifice to be able to talk to God again? Where would you be at? What would your relationship with him be like? Keeping a constant relationship, an open communication with God would become nearly impossible, practically speaking. To make matters even worse, the priest helping you has to keep up his own relationship with God as well. Remember, the priest is a sinner just like you and I, okay? He has sin in his life. So what happens if you do your due diligence, you've got your sacrifice, you bring him up to the temple, you lay him down to be sacrificed, but the priest hasn't sacrificed for his own sin. If he's a sinner just like you and he hasn't sacrificed for his own sin, can he talk to God? No, you've done everything you were supposed to do, but he can't even talk to God on your behalf because his sin hasn't been paid for at the moment. So yet another stumbling block in our way, another obstacle stands in our way. So with Jesus' one sacrifice, the priest and the sacrifice were the two biggest obstacles for men and women to have a relationship with their creator. And the words say in chapter 7, verse 22, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety for a better covenant. So another way to state that, because New King James doesn't always say it the best way, in so many ways, Jesus has become a better guarantee of a better covenant between us and God. He removes all of the major obstacles in his one sacrifice. So the book of Hebrews is telling us that he is now our priest and he will forever be. 
So we now have somebody who can talk to God on our behalf at any time because he has no sin standing in his way of approaching the throne on our behalf. If that wasn't enough good news right there, he continues on and says, wait, there's more. But he, because he continues forever, Jesus doesn't die, he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for us. So he can continue and guarantee our salvation forever because he exists forever in that position. Since he always lives to make intercession. There are many who want to base their salvation on their own efforts. I'm going to find my way to God. Everybody has their own way to God. You've probably heard that. My grandpa always used to say when I asked him about God and how we got to God, he'd be like, well, everybody has their own path. Everybody finds their own way. When I was younger, I wanted to come to God on my terms. I wanted to prove my own worth that I could fix what I needed to fix and I could man up and I could do what I needed to do to get to God. And I think at one point, most of us think along these lines, like I can earn this and God's going to be proud of me and he's going to accept me for who I am. And this is the reason why the nation of Israel originally agreed to keep the Ten Commandments. They wanted to prove to God that they could be counted on, that they could be the ones to hold up their end of the bargain. Second worst decision in the history of all mankind only followed up by the first worst decision in history, which is Adam choosing consciously to sin in the garden. The second worst decision is Israel saying that they could keep God's commandments on their own. Unfortunately, I can't say I completely blame them. I've been there. I've taken on too much to try to impress somebody. You ever done that? Trying to impress your parents, maybe your new in-laws, maybe your friends, your spouse, your boss. So you're like, hey, can you do this? Yeah, I can do that, no problem. I've got, you know, 40 other things on my schedule, but I can get that one done as well because you want them to be impressed with you. You ever been there and you find out you're coming up short because you can't, because you've taken on too much? The worst part is instead of owning up to our responsibilities, what do we do? Well, if this hadn't happened, I would have been able to finish it. But, you know, that was somebody else's fault, and it wasn't in my control. Look at what the book of Hebrews says. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices. What we were just talking about. First for his own sins, then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. You can try to get to God on your own, but Jesus has already paved the way. And he's done it in such a way that he invites you to follow him. You can rely on your own strength or you can rely on Jesus's. I know which way I've chosen. I want you to notice that this is the second time in two chapters, last chapter and in this one, he again states he died once for all when he offered up himself. He does not have to die again on the cross, ever. His one sacrifice covers your mistakes for all time, past, future, and present. Everything, every mistake you will ever make, every wrong turn, and oh no, I totally made 
a wrong decision. Every time you realize you messed up, every time you sinned, Jesus' one sacrifice covered it. You don't have to wonder, is Jesus going to stop loving me because I'm not growing in my relationship fast enough with him? I feel like I've stalled out. You ever been there where you stalled out in your relationship and you're like, does Jesus still want me around because it's been like six months and I've seen no growth? Maybe it's even been longer. You don't have to wonder if God regrets letting you into his family. So what does the order of Melchizedek have to do with us? Ultimately, it's an everlasting priesthood that Jesus alone holds. He holds that position on our behalf, on your behalf. He is our priest, and we no longer need a temple. Jesus himself once said these words, But the hour is coming, and it now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We don't need to bring a sacrifice to the temple. Jesus is our sacrifice. We don't need to speak to a priest who may or may not have confessed his own sins and have an open relationship with God at any moment. We speak directly to Jesus, who sits on the mercy seat at the right hand of God permanently as our priest. He's our advocate. He speaks to God continually on your behalf, and God listens to him. Anyone here find it encouraging that the Son of God speaks to God on your behalf personally? There are times in my life where I felt like my prayers are hitting a ceiling. Like there was a disconnect between me and God. You ever been there? Sometimes the times where my prayers were hitting a ceiling, it was my own fault. I had unconfessed sin in my life and I was just being too stubborn to admit it. Other times, I feel like maybe it was just the enemy trying to give me a feeling of disconnect. But no matter where I was at, the truth is Jesus was still for me. He was still speaking to the Father on my behalf, and he was always heard by the Father. So today, be grateful for the order of Melchizedek. Even if you can't spell Melchizedek, it's because of this order that Jesus is our high priest and he's speaking to God on your behalf even right now. He speaks to him continually is what the Bible says. Each and every single day all the way up until the day you go ahead and meet him face to face. In light of our conversation today, I'm going to close with two application questions. Number one, have you been taking your relationship with Jesus for granted? It's easy to overlook how uncomplicated our relationship with God has been made through the sacrifice of Jesus. We no longer have to make a trip to the temple. Could you imagine having to do this? Could you imagine the Amish right now having to grab a goat, going to Walmart, if that was the temple? And that was close. Yeah, okay, that's, yeah, no funny. When you're honest, if you had to make a trip that was more than, uh, I mean, even a mile, okay? So if, if it was just a mile down the road, if it was from here to Grace's house, how often would you make that trip with an animal to go for a sacrifice? How would that affect your relationship? Jesus made it so we don't have to go to one location. Wherever we are at, we are in the presence of God. That's how he changed it. Don't take that for granted. Are you thankful it's no longer that way? Second one is how has fear been controlling you? We all have fears, fear of a loss of control, fear of not being good enough or even not having enough. We each have fears, and Jesus came to take those fears away. And he sits at God's right hand right now, at this very instant, talking to the Father on our behalf. And he will never stop fighting for you. 
remember that. Let's close in prayer. Father, I do thank you so much for your word. I thank you that Jesus is in the position that he is in. Lord, even if we don't always understand everything that's going on, I thank you that you made a plan and you had an idea that you wanted to see through for us and that it's for our benefit. Thank you that we have a perfect high priest who will always advocate on our behalf, that he will always speak to you. Lord, help us to never take for granted what you have given us through your son. Help us to always be grateful for what he has done. Lord, help that to change the way we view our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the Word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by Scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's Word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.